Welcome to Public Safety Talk Radio, the podcast for all of our heroes in public safety, including law enforcement professionals, firefighters, EMTs, corrections officers, healthcare workers, and more. The show is produced by the POCUA and is founded upon its soundness initiative. This episode is sponsored by the Finest Service Organization, a provider of line of duty death loan protection through many of our POCUA institutions. I am Ken Bader, your host for Public Safety Talk Radio, and this is a first for Public Safety Talk Radio. First time we've ever had a return guest, and we have a really, really damn good reason. I am so, so happy to welcome back Michael Sugre. I got that right this time, correct? Uh, close, Sugru. Sugru, you know, here, you know, I was so excited. It's like, you know, it's a return guest. I know how to say his last name. Didn't even ask you before I pressed record, and I already screwed it up. You know, heck with it. We won't even, we won't even do this episode. It's my fault. <laughs> but no, we will do this episode uh, because I'm so, so pleased to have Michael back uh, because he recently published Relentless Courage. Uh, which is an awesome book for the record at the recording of this episode. I'm almost done. You know, so I should be done, but I'm almost done. So don't don't spoil the ending for me. Like, you know, if you pass away at the end, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> I, I, I won't tell you the ending. Don't worry. <laughs> that's, that's my very poor attempt at a bad joke and trying to bring some levity. Uh, but I, I want to dig into the book. It's not only excellent it's very well done coming from a fellow author um but also um it certainly isn't light reading uh it's it's certainly heavy for for a reason and before i even ask a question uh i just want to say you know, having understood a lot about what you've gone through more so than the first time we talked um as a civilian who staunchly not blindly but staunchly supports law enforcement. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm I'm truly and sincerely sorry for what you went through, um, how you were treated, uh, both by the judicial system and uh, unfortunately at the end of your law enforcement career. Um, shouldn't have happened. Uh, I'm sorry, man, for whatever it's worth. I appreciate that. But, you know, one thing I want to point out straight up first on is that I'm not unique and I'm not special. And what's in this book, it it literally resonates with everybody. And that's the sad reality of this project in this book is that it's a harsh reality check for not just first responders, but for their loved ones, for family members and just people out there on the streets. I mean, this really is pulling back the curtain and showing the true human side behind the badge and behind the uniform. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And obviously, everybody that's listening or watching, um, you, know, you, you really need to get a copy of Relentless Courage, because this episode, whether it's a half an hour, even if we go for three hours, Michael, I promise not to keep you that long. It won't it won't do the, the book justice uh, or the great work that Michael and Doc Springer did with it um but uh you know you you got dragged through a whole judicial process for doing your job and i'm not you know although i am a civilian i'm not naive to the fact that police officers do they do their job um they have an in the line of duty shooting 
and uh, you know, you do your job properly, and they they rake you through the coals for it, and and personally rake you through the coals. And I can't believe that that that's the society we live in. Yeah, it's it's actually gotten much worse today. Yeah. You know, my shooting happened back in the uh, end of 2012, and my trial went in 2016. So, you know, just imagine now in today's time in yeah. 2022, um, just how much worse things have gotten. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, one thing before I even get into, you know, my my plan line of questioning, just as a consumer of the product of your book and, and reading it, you know, I went through sadness, I went through anger, I went through, you know, some understanding. And one thing, many things really stood out at me. But the number one thing is when you talked about that night um, when you you did you know shoot that person who in self defense I I do want to say uh, based on all the facts um, I remember in the book you relaying you thinking you know don't do this <laughs> don't make me shoot you don't make me have to do this and I remember thinking while I was reading it you know on on the plane. Just simply, you know, how many officers, you know, I would think, you know, over 90% in these two situations are thinking just that, you know, not that, hey, I get to take somebody out. It's like, please don't make me do this. I don't want to do this. Absolutely. And, you know, there's also a big misconception out there. If you don't watch the news and media, you would think that officers are involved in shootings all the time throughout their career. And the facts are that most officers are never actually involved in a police shooting, much less a fatal police shooting. Um, I would say it's probably less than 1% of all police officers across the nation are ever involved in a fatal police shooting. And I can even look to my stepfather, who I talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. My book is devoted to him. He was a police lieutenant in Richmond, California, one of the most dangerous cities, not just in California, but in the nation. And he was never involved in a fatal police shooting. And so, you know, it can happen anytime, anywhere, but it doesn't happen that often. But when it does happen, like in my case, it's affected me for the rest of my life. Yeah. And it still affects me today as we're talking here. Well, your stepfather did, um, in essence, save his colleague, at that canine officer, um, by shooting a, a, a very vicious dog that was coming after him. So in essence, he was involved in a shoot. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. See, that's, that's, just, that's just me trying to bring a little bit of lightness right. coupled with the fact to prove that I actually read most of the book. How's that? No, and, I, and I'm grateful you did because, you know, this book, it's hard getting the word out there. But yeah. what I've heard from most everyone that's read it is once they start, they can't stop. They can't put the book down. And it's it's riveting. And, you know, what I want to address just early on, if I can, is Doc Please. Springer. And Dr. Yeah. Shauna Springer is a clinical psychologist. She's what I call a culturally competent clinician. She's worked with combat veterans, first responders. She's a Harvard grad, and she'd actually already written three books before this book, but she's the one that made this entire project happen. Yeah. Um, and I and if I we have time, I'll give you the background story on how that happened. But she is a gifted writer. She's a gifted person. And to be able to collaborate with her and work with her on this project was just it was meant to be. I mean, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. But, but also what makes this book very unique is that it's not just a story or my story. It has the doctor 
breaking everything down and explaining it in, in general terms so that anybody and everybody that picks up this book, even if you don't know a single first responder personally, you're going to get it. You're truly mm -hmm. going to get it and you're going to understand it. And I venture to bet it's going to change your entire perspective on how you view all first responders, yeah. not just cops, but paramedics, firefighters, dispatchers. It's going to change your entire perception. I, I I agree with that. And this is coming from somebody that already had a respect and, and a mild kinship with first responders. I've never been a first responder, but I've worked with a number of them in different capacities. Definitely not at the level of Doc Springer, of course. Um, but even from somebody that supports these professions, you know, I learned uh, a lot from your book and you're speaking about you know the, the the a part that i really liked which was uh doc springer's reflections um and i found that you know after there was a really hard-hitting chapter you know i really look forward to getting into her insight uh from somebody that has a different background and also was not a first responder, but understands that mentality. I think that she helps to explain a lot of that. And I, I do actually want to get back to that, but let's, let's actually go back like just a half a step in that. Yeah. Bluntly, this is, this was a painful time for you. Um, yeah. Most of the things in the book with a few exceptions, um, are painful. They were painful for me to read. So I, I can only imagine what it was like for you to live it. You know, why go through that again? You know, what was the motivation? You know, maybe, maybe Doc Springer just, you know, simply, you know, she, she, <laughs> she, she puts you in a headlock until you decided to do it. She sounds like a pretty badass woman in there, given she, some of the things, is. but why did, why, <laughs> why, why, what the, what was the motivation for Relentless Courage? So, you know, I never envisioned ever having a book, writing a book. I mean, it was something I thought of, but I never really thought it would be a reality or a possibility. And to make a long story somewhat short, I'm going to go back before COVID. And I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm a pretty big influencer there. I'm always posting things on suicide prevention, post-traumatic stress injury, what I like to call it, versus post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And Doc Springer actually found me on LinkedIn. And one day she sent me a message and just said, Hey, I'd like to, you know, have a chat with you if you have time to let you know what I'm doing and see what you're doing. And so literally it was just kind of like an introduction phone call. And so she called and we sat there and talked and early on our discussion, you know, I had to tell her the story and I kind of gave her the reader's digest version of my story, which is in full length in the book. Yeah. And then she told me about the work she does currently with stellate ganglion block, which is a, it's a medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress injury. And during that first conversation, she actually asked me, she said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, it's funny that you asked me that because other people have asked, and I've actually had a few people offer to, to write a book with me. Um, but I just said, you know, I just, I don't have the patience or the focus <laughs> To get this done, I really don't. I mean, part of it is the 20 plus years of report writing, both in the military and in law enforcement. But to be quite frank, part of it is also the results of post-traumatic stress injury. And, and that's affected my focus, my concentration, my patience. And so we kind of left the conversation at that. And a few months later, she hits me back up 
And I believe this is like right before COVID started back in 2019. And she's like, look, she's like, I really thought about this. You know, after our discussion, she said that your story, it, it really hit me. And she's, she said, this is what she said. She said, your story is going to help countless people. Yeah. People are going to be able to resonate with what you experienced and what you went through. And she said, I want to make this happen. I want to make this happen for you. And I want to do this with you. And, and this is literally how it happened. And I knew when she said that I didn't, I didn't pause. I didn't hesitate. I said, let's do it. I knew in my heart that she was the right person to do this with. And we actually started this process when COVID happened and we didn't meet in person for like a year and a half into this project. We literally did it on zoom like every week, like two hour mm -hmm. zoom sessions recorded. And it was a long, tedious, draining process. But what was really nice was that and it was difficult to do this. I mean, I had to go back to the deepest, darkest moments of my my life, going back to childhood. But I had Doc Springer who would check in with me before and after every session. And I knew I could call her up day and night. We have that relationship where I could just talk to her and she would listen. And that's what this is about is, you know, just talking about it. And that's the strength in this is yeah. that if we change this culture and the stigma of, talking about our feelings, admitting that we need help and we just normalize it. That's the key to getting better. That's the key to coming out the other side. And so I am just so blessed to have been paired with her. I mean, I, I, I truly believe that God set us together in this path yeah. and now we're truly making a difference. And this book is saving lives, absolutely saving lives. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised at all. Um, I I could see how, you know, somebody gets into just a couple of chapters that may be in a difficult space, um, how this really would help. And, you know, to your, not that you wouldn't have written a great book, uh, but for somebody that um, I don't have PTSD or PTSI to my knowledge, uh, but also do not have any patients, uh, know, know, what, know what it's like having written a couple of books to have to push through that chapter. Uh, I'm sure if you had, I, I'm sure if you had done it on your own, it's still would have been a quality um but i don't want to lose um the great uh addition and addition's probably not the right word i think it's it's more of a finished product and more valuable with um doc sean uh, dr sean springer's reflections in here now a word from one of the pocua's proud business partners officerprivacy.com OfficerPrivacy.com was founded by Pete James, a law enforcement professional with over 25 years of experience. Pete wanted to find a way to help law enforcement officers protect themselves and their families. So he formed a team to create a way to quickly identify and remove their information from certain sites. OfficerPrivacy.com is the result. This service is already offered through a select few of our POCUA organizations. As a listener of Public Safety Talk Radio, you can take advantage of a special offer from officerprivacy.com. Go to officerprivacy.com slash POCUA, and when you sign up, you'll get two additional bonuses. In addition to removing your personal information from the top 30 people search sites, they will give you your first two months of monitoring free. This is a value of $39.98. 
In addition to that, you'll receive a cell phone privacy device, a 1999 value. This prevents data from leaving your cell phone when you use public charging stations and is a must when traveling. So go to officerprivacy.com slash POCUA today to take advantage of this offer and to protect your privacy. Organizations who are members of the POCUA and are interested in offering the service directly to their members, contact us at POCUA at btcinc.org. It, at one point that she made that I made a particular note on, she said that she was focused on listening eloquently. And I thought that was an interesting way to put it uh, in a good way. Um, tell us more. And you kind of got into it a little bit with the Zoom, but tell us more about you know the initial process of, of compiling the book and, and, and how you felt, how that felt for you, you know, did you ever say, you know what, this is too much for me? Or, you know, did you say, you know what, we're pushing through this. We, we need to finish this sucker. No, you know, I knew from the very beginning that I was going to do everything I could in my power to make this happen, to make it a reality. I, I truly felt this is my purpose. This is my mission in life. And although it was very difficult, very draining and, and, you know, and then it also happened during COVID, which was a difficult time for everybody. I mean, it really was, but it also gave me purpose during that time. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it gave me a reason to, to get up every day and, and to focus on this. And so, you know, the process, you know, we had to lay it out and talk about the chapters and what topics are we going to cover and what order are we going to do things? And it was a constant going back and forth. Um, and oftentimes what would happen is that after a two hour long Zoom meeting where it was recorded, mm-hmm. Doc Springer would actually like get up super early on a Saturday morning while her family was sleeping and she would literally knock out a chapter and then she would send it to me and we would talk about it. We would go back and forth and then she would add her comments and her part to it. And so it was a continuous process like that. And it just it worked out beautifully. But. The thing that makes this book so special is that there's countless books out there, not to take away from them, but there's a lot of first town account books from, you know, firefighters, police officers. And there's also a lot of books out there from doctors and clinicians, but to have the two combined into one book, that's what actually makes this groundbreaking. It makes it innovative. It makes it very different than the rest because usually you have to pick, do I want to just read somebody's life story? Or do I want to read like a textbook and to learn more about post-traumatic stress injury and anxiety and suicide? But this actually puts the two together and it actually balances out. Cause like you said, you know, I've heard from a lot of people where they literally said, look, my stomach started turning. Like Mm -hmm. I literally got anxiety as I was reading parts of this book. And the nice thing about that is this, the way the structure is every chapter has two parts. The first part of every chapter is, is my story in my voice. And the second part of every chapter is Doc Springer's reflections. And so you have a constant balance from chapter one all the way through to the very ending, which you haven't gotten to, but 
but you're I'm close. There, so. I'm close. close. I'm 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 literally I'm literally pissed at myself of uh, not having finished the last literally like 50 pages of yeah. this. Um, I was I was actually you know my my plane got in early on the last leg of my trip uh, on Saturday before you know here speaking with you and I was I was thinking you know oh you know now it comes in early you know <laughs> it was almost done you know for all the times that I'm delayed and everything and I'm pissed about it you know now I'd actually say all right if I had another 20 minutes I could finish this sucker <laughs> absolutely but you know not to say you know I certainly a was looking forward to reading it um and B was expecting a a quality product um as I was going through some of the reviews and seeing some of the folks that we've had on this show like Chris Luttrell and uh, Randy Sutton I was like oh these guys they're saying it's good well then it must be good um and then it, it really really hit me um you know and, I, and I'm gonna go a little bit off the rails here but I, I think that this is important for not only the episode, but for our first responders that are listening or watching this, it's you, you talk about your marriage in the book. Um, and it's an unfortunate fact that you know, first responders, it's, it's, it's a tough job for marriages. Um, marriages in general, especially marriages um, with kids, yeah how are you doing how was yeah i was i was hoping and as i was reading it i was rooting and saying all right you know maybe is is you you're going through this trial and going through some things you know maybe this turns around yeah and there's there's kind of an ending where it's like oh you're back together and everything was understood and so forth unfortunately we didn't have that but the question is how is your relationship with with your ex-wife and and your daughter today well, my daughter, I mean, I couldn't have a better relationship with my daughter. And, awesome. you know, part of this is a mixed blessing because I had to medically retire um, in 2018 from mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress injury. But because of that, that's allowed me to be a full-time father when I have her. I have my daughter half the time. You know, I drive her to school. I pick her up. I go to her volleyball games. I go to school functions. I spend every second that I can with my daughter. And so... I am truly blessed to have that very close relationship with her. And as far as her mother goes, you know, we don't have a close relationship. Um, everything is pretty, you know, email or text. It's kind of very official, but she's a very good mother to our daughter. And, and yeah. that's in the end, that's all I can ask for. You know, I, I, I do hope though, that someday my daughter's mother reads this book because I think if she were to read it, there'd be some healing behind that. Yeah. I think maybe it might change some of her perceptions. And ironically enough, her mother, my ex-mother-in-law read the book and it touched her. And she sent me a very nice heartfelt message afterwards. And, and she said, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry that you had to go through this and endure all this, but I'm so glad that you're here for Addie. Addie is the name of my daughter. Yeah. And, and that's what this is all about is that, it's never too late to turn things around. You know, things take work, things take effort. I mean, my marriage was lost, but what has prevailed and has grown tremendously is the relationship with my daughter. And, and that's why I'm here today. And that's, that's my sole purpose. You know, a lot of people ask me like, what are you doing now? What are your future plans? And 
the truth is I'm retired. And yeah, we wrote a book. I speak occasionally across the country, mm -hmm. but my main focus every day is being a father, being present, being here, because there was a few years there where I wasn't present. I was there physically, yeah. but I wasn't there mentally or emotionally. And now I am today. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really pleased. And you, you touch on that a little bit in the book, um, the relationship that you have with your daughter and how positive it is. And I'm really pleased to hear that. And uh, also for uh, all of the law enforcement spouses, we were, were pleased to be very close to how to love our cops and, and uh, a, a law enforcement spouse organization in the POCOA that does amazing work. Um, yeah, you know, certainly, you know, my, my purpose of the question, you know, wasn't to, uh, highlight in any negative way, your, your ex-wife, because I truly believe that every law enforcement spouse, um, you know, goes through everything that the law enforcement officer goes through. Um, and that spouse needs to be at least as bad as, uh, probably more <laughs> than, yeah. than the first responder, you know, him or herself, because, because they're dealing with so many things in a different way. So, um, you know, I, I, I hope that, that she reads the book and, uh, and I, I hope that, uh, you know, whatever, uh, whatever can come that's positive from that comes from that. So, yeah, to, to move on a little bit, a question that I, I really, really need to ask, because you do speak, you do a lot of great things with, um, and I forget the name of the project, I it's the West Coast. Uh, West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. Post-Trauma Retreat, and sorry, I didn't write that down. Um, and, and doing a lot of things through the book and through your speaking to help other first responders it seems that as an outsider, as a civilian, that over the last five to 10 years, we, we've come to accept a little bit more of this trauma and saying, OK, we these folks need help. You know, it's not just which I've also heard, you know, have a beer and get over it and get back on the job type of crap. Um how far have we really come in understanding first responder trauma and doing something about it? And how far do we really still need to go in order to be effective in, in helping first responders and provide the support that they need? Well, we need to go a lot farther, but I'm yeah. going to take that a step back and point something out that I think will become obvious once I mention it. But the general public, if you were to ask them, they're generally accepting of military post-traumatic stress. Uh, most of the public views that, hey, if, if a soldier, if they go off to a hostile war zone or Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever the case may be, you know, there's a chance that they may come back with post-traumatic stress. And, you know, we're going to support them. Here's the resources. Um, you see a lot of different organizations out there for the military. But the general public, for whatever reason, they don't equate that same type of trauma to our first responders. And, you know, when I talk about first responders, I'm talking about firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, obviously police officers. Um, but as a comparison, because I am a veteran, I was an air force captain, security forces. I served all over the world. I was in the middle East, South America. And the thing is, is that when someone goes off to combat, they're in a known hostile zone for a defined period of time. And eventually they leave that hostile zone and they come back stateside or they go back home and they're removed from it. But in law enforcement, especially we're literally in combat every single day. And we're talking 20 
to now maybe up to 30 years in a career where you're constantly, your head is on a swivel. Mm -hmm. You're always on guard. You're always looking around. And when you're at work and you're wearing that uniform, I mean, you can literally be at Starbucks on a quick break getting coffee and somebody could come in and gun you down. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of anti-law enforcement movement out there. There's a lot of people who are attacking and killing cops. And when we see it in the news almost every single day. And so, and not just that, but so you take that hypervigilance and the constant threat, every single person we contact, whether it's like a pedestrian stop, a car stop, a call for service, it's a potential lethal threat, right? Because we don't truly know who the enemy is. Mm-hmm. But then on top of that, we're exposed to hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents over our career. So we're talking about really bad car accidents, whether it's serious injury or fatal, you know, homicides, suicides, even just natural deaths, domestic violence, sexual abuse, child abuse. I mean, the things that we see day in and day out, it's all constant negative trauma. I mean, people don't call 911 on the best day of their life Mm -hmm. to say, hey, come on over. Let's celebrate. (laughs) Let me tell you about how great my day was. They're calling you on the worst day of their life. And so I think, though, that we as an entity, all first responders, especially law enforcement, we need to do a better job in educating the public lifting up that wall, lifting up that veil and letting them know that we're human, letting them know that these things affect us just like it would affect them, you know, and that we have our own problems and our own personal trauma on top of the work stuff. And that's part of what this book is doing is that the first purpose of it was to save first responder lives because the suicide epidemic, it's out of control. I mean, you're much more likely to die by your own hands than the hands of another as a first responder. But the other thing this book is doing is that it's changing views and changing perceptions of the general public towards law enforcement. And so we need to do more of this. We need to do it as agencies, as cities, counties. We need to be more open and be more vulnerable and be more honest. Yeah, so many great points there. Um, it's funny you mentioned Starbucks and being on guard. And I'm going to go off the rails a little bit, and it'll lighten things up just a tad. Um, but the uh, the gym that I go to, um, I uh, I hop on a shared bike here in Long Beach, California, to go to the gym, and I pedal my fat ass four miles um, along the beach and and go to to the gym, and then many times after the gym there's a starbucks um which is in right in between that starbucks and the gym is the long beach police department headquarters Hmm. so when i'm sitting there uh doing innocuous things like trying to get new guests for public safety talk radio via email on my laptop uh i would say that at least in the time that i'm there about a half a dozen uh police officers walk in and out of there to, to get their their coffee and uh, as long as it doesn't interrupt a conversation they're having or, or their day, I, I often say, um, thank you. Yeah, I say, thank you for your service. I appreciate what you guys do. Um, and I always get a positive response back. But unlike, for instance, I live literally by a fire department. And every time I go by there, I say the same thing. Hey, thanks, guys. I appreciate what you do. 
it seems like the firefighters are always like, yeah, man, no, appreciate it. You know, thanks. You know, I appreciate you saying that with the police officers. You know, it's always like, yeah, yeah thank you. You know, it's, it's heartfelt. You know, some of them say a little bit more. Some of them you could see that, you know, there's a weight on them that day um and they say thank you but yeah it's it's very very quick yeah they're they're almost some of them and this is unfortunate i get it some of them are like all right do you have an angle here are you trying to take my attention from something else and that's not my intention but i get it It, it, it's it's so unfortunate that for the right reasons or the unfortunate reasons i'm not getting this overly enthusiastic response that i get from firefighters that i i get from the the police officers that i say thank you to and i think you know you kind of hit on why well and you know i hate to admit this but i picked the wrong career i should have been a firefighter because everyone loves firefighters i mean everyone (laughs) loves firefighters you know you see them in the grocery store they're picking out their food for the barbecue you know they're it's waving, they're smiling, the kids are checking out the fire truck. I mean, everyone loves firefighters, but cops, you know, we're getting middle fingers. We're getting dirty looks, um, you know, and, and like you said, I hate to say this, but, you know, I've had people come up to me too. And it's like, you're on guard, you know, you step back yeah. and you're like, wait a minute, why, why is this person coming up to me? And why are they trying to talk to me? You know, are they genuine or, or is there ulterior motives? And that what you mentioned is actually a really good point because it, it changes our perception. Mm-hmm. It changes our attitude. It changes who we trust. It really just changes us as a person. You know, it's, it's I'll never be the same person before post-traumatic stress, but I'll also never be the same person before I started my law enforcement career. Yeah. You know, just being a first responder, especially a police officer, it changes you as a person. Yep. I, I can only imagine um, switching gears completely, you, 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 you have a very vast military career. What's the coolest place they ever sent you to? Uh, Columbia. That was, <laughs> I was in, uh, the jungles for the, yeah. the bad part, but then for the nice part, I was in Bogota and Cartagena. And I look back on that. I was a Phoenix Raven at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was part of a, it's called a global mobility assessment team where you go to different countries and you assess the foreign airfields and it was like really hard work, but it was also really good times. And and that was the highlight of my career. I mean, it was it was an amazing time. I unfortunately I can't talk about everything that happened. <laughs> <out there>. <laughs> uh, completely <laughs> un- classified. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some someday we'll know about it. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, there's another book. <laughs> what was, you know, and maybe you talk about this in the last 50 pages that I didn't get to. Um, but yeah, I understand where where you had to go with with this book, but in your law enforcement career, is there one thing that you look back on and say, yeah, you know, I really did something here. I really enjoyed that. And you say, yeah, this is kind of the gem uh, of my career of being a police officer. For me, that's easy. It was being undercover. I was an undercover agent on a California state drug task force. You know, I looked nothing like a police officer. I worked at a clandestine uh, office. Nobody knew what we were doing or who we were. Mm -hmm. And it was literally, I mean, I got to see and do things, you know, with federal agencies, state agencies. I mean, I went down to the U.S.-Mexico border. We had 
you know, surveillance and planes and helicopters, wiretap investigations. I mean, just the excitement of literally kicking down doors, you know, multiple times a week, like a SWAT team would mm-hmm. do. It was just, I mean, it was my dream come true. And um, I talk about in the book, I don't want to give it away here, but yeah. there's something very, I don't even know how to word it with the the right. It makes me very angry to bring it up, but there was something that happened that took that all away from me it, and yeah. it changed everything in my life. But I mean, that was my goal. That was my dream. That's what I aspired to do. And I wanted to do that as long as I could. And in a blink, in an instant, it was taken from me. Yeah, I uh, I had the distinct pleasure to uh, to interview Lou Velosi, who uh, wrote uh, Storefront Sting. Um, he uh, he he did a lot of undercover work in uh, in Georgia, and you could hear you could hear it or feel it in the book how much he enjoyed mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah. job, um, and uh, a lot of a lot of great stories. <laughs> uh, lots of good stories. Yeah. We could talk for hours and hours, <laughs> probably days actually. So Pro- yeah, maybe weeks. Yeah, yes, maybe it's another yes. book. Um, <laughs> yes. As as we begin to wrap up here. For those folks that are listening, watching, you know, that that may be going through a bad time, uh, and I know that's sophomoric to say bad time, but bad time, you know, means a lot of different things to different people. You know, other than you know, obviously getting a copy of the book on Amazon or what have you, or and 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 reading it and finding some healing in that. Yeah, is there a is there a number one suggestion or a tip and say you know what if if you you're going through something rough maybe you're reading a few chapters of relentless courage and you say hey I identify with that and you know I'm hurting I need something you know, what should that individual do next well first and foremost you got to talk about it you can't keep it in and, and I know that sounds so easy uh, but in reality it's not for a lot of people it has to be a, a trusted relationship or you know there's not going to be negative ramifications on your career, um, on potential assignments or promotions. And so you really, you need to establish these type of relationships early on and know who you can trust, know who you can go to, you know, especially finding a culturally competent therapist and finding one before you truly need them, you know, find them early on and just build that rapport, build that relationship. So when the big one happens, you can pick up that phone, you can call them. Um, you know, the beauty about this book is in the very back of the book, there's a couple things. The first thing is that we talk about how do we change this culture? You know, how do we move ahead? How do we shape law enforcement down the road? But the very last part of this book is a whole resources section. Mm-hmm. There's contact numbers, there's text lines, all confidential, all staffed by first responders. Um, there's numerous programs, ones that I've personally mm-hmm. been through or ones that I know people that have been through that are for post-traumatic stress injury. And so, you know, I didn't know all these resources were out there when I first started my journey of recovery from post-traumatic stress. But through this process, I've learned that in reality, there's endless resources out there. Yep. And, and they're literally in the back of the book. So, you know, first and foremost, talk to somebody. But if you have the book and you're reading it and you need to talk to somebody right then and there and you don't know who, who you can turn to, turn to the very back of the book and call or text one of those confidential numbers where it's only staffed by fellow first responders. Yeah, that's, that's awesome advice. It's spot on. Um, I'm looking at those pages right now. 
and there's a lot of not only quality organizations um, for people to to go to and choose, um, but many names that I've I've heard before um, and uh, know that uh, that they're quality, including Mission Twenty Two. They're doing a a whole push up thing in the month of November that I'm a part of. I could still do freaking twenty two push ups a, a, d- a day if you could believe that. Well, a phenomenal organization. I actually went through. <laughs> I can't believe it. I think, but uh, I actually, can even do. I can't run anymore because you know my spine's about to fall out of my ass. But you know, I can still, I can still do push it. I can even do forty-four. I can do double of them. But anyhow, continue. <laughs> yeah, but Mission Twenty Two, phenomenal organization. I actually went through a year-long program with them. It ended probably about five months ago, and it's called uh, Recovery and Resilience, mm-hmm. and phenomenal phenomenal program they actually along with me produced a short film it's only nine and a half minutes but it's called the stigma of help Mm. and it's on youtube it's on the mission 22 channel but i i really encourage everyone to watch that i actually play it before i speak anywhere across the country the very first thing i do is i play that nine and a half minute video Mm. very very powerful it has my co-author in there Uh, My friend, John Davison, who I talk about in the book, he's a Vietnam veteran. My daughter's in there. Just, just very powerful video, very quality. But like I said, mission 22 is making a real difference every single day. Phenomenal, phenomenal organization. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, All of them that are in the book are phenomenal organizations. Um, As we close up, I know I've said this on the show probably a dozen times before in, in these subjects were, but it's it, it it bears repeating. Um, I am not shy about telling people that I'm an alcoholic in recovery, and the reason it took me so long to admit that and get some help is because I had this fear of okay, I got to take care of this myself. You know, if everybody finds out how bad this is, everybody's going to think I'm a piece of crap. And I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose my wife. I'm going to lose my friends. I'm going to lose my business. I'm going to lose my colleagues, you know, every, my parents, you know, everybody. And when I actually admitted that I needed help, the surprising thing to me, uh, which bears repeating, is I lost nobody. Nobody left. Yeah, every everybody rallied behind me. You know, some people, you know, were a little bit disappointed for different reasons, but they're like, all right, if you if you need help, I'm with you as long as you continue to help yourself. And I think that that's important, especially for first responders, because I've heard this before, is that yeah, they're, they're not built that way to just you know say, hey, I need help. Uh, and many of them do think, hey, you know, I'm going to lose everything if I say I need help and I have a problem. Uh, but I can tell you that that very rarely happens. Uh, absolutely. And I, I'm living proof of that. I mean, yeah. had I not asked for help, I would not be here today because I got to the point where I was going to take my own life. I didn't want to be here anymore. And I, I'm living a whole new life. I mean, it, it was a long journey and there was a lot behind it, a lot of ups and downs. But like I said, that the people that truly care, there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of resources, but we're so good at hiding it and making everyone think that everything's fine. Nothing bothers us. And so you do have to ask for help. And that takes a lot of strength and courage. And I was so embarrassed and so ashamed. That's what prevented me from asking for help. And even, I mean, a couple of years into my recovery, I was still embarrassed and ashamed, but I look back now and I know without a doubt, 
it is the most courageous thing I've ever done. Nothing I did in the military, nothing I did on the streets. It was asking for that help. Agreed. So last question before we close up for those folks out there that, uh, that want to uh, buy a copy or a hundred copies of relentless courage or need to reach out to you for, for speaking gigs or anything like that. How best can they find you and the book out there? Okay. So the book is only on Amazon. Um, you had the soft copy. This is actually the hardcover, which I highly recommend. The quality is phenomenal. It's a little bit more. Um, it's also on Kindle, but again, the book is only on Amazon. So we self-published. It's the only place you can get it. Uh, but if you want to contact me, there's a couple different options. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, just under my name. I'm on there every single day. I do check my messages. I do get back to people. Um, I also run a couple different Facebook pages and Instagram pages. Um, on both platforms, Sergeant Michael Segru is one of my pages. And the other one is called First Responders First. And on that one, there's a lot of good articles that I'm always posting, not written by me, but ones that I find news sources, but it's constant information on post-traumatic stress, um, suicide prevention for, you know, all first responders. And I also run a private group on Facebook with the same name. It's called First Responders First. And I vet every single member. So look for those, uh, send me a message and I will absolutely get back to you. Yeah. And I can tell you, everybody who's listening or watching firsthand, Michael does get back to you like that <laughs> especially on linkedin because i think that's how i ended up getting connected with you but uh michael i could talk to you for another hour but um awesome book great job on that you and doc springer and thank you so much for for taking some time with us again here on public safety talk radio absolutely thanks for having me it was my honor my pleasure and thank you to all of you who have either watched or listen to this episode of Public Safety Talk Radio, and we'll be back with you next week with another great guest. Public Safety Talk Radio is produced by the POCUA. The POCUA is a consortium of financial institutions serving law enforcement, as well as other first responders and public safety professionals. To learn more about our association and to find one of our credit needs or service providers near you, go to www.policecreditunions.com. And always remember, if you aren't working with one of our POCUA credit unions, you're just banking with an institution that just so happens to serve first responders. As a public safety professional, you and your family deserve better. Find a POCUA credit union today. Thank you.